I think these policy fights for Bitcoin, these, this is the fight of my generation. And I think it's absolutely important that we as, as Bitcoiners and people who care about this technology understand these political fights, these legal fights, because if we get the policy wrong, it can totally skew our future. Hello there. How are you all doing? I'm pretty good here. Happy to be back in California. Happy to be over here for the Pacific Bitcoin Conference. I think the Swan team have done an amazing job putting this together. I'm looking forward to being involved in all of the proceedings. I'm going to be emceeing part of the show, and I'm also going to be moderating a couple of panels. So it's going to be very cool. Hopefully going to meet some of you Bitcoiners here too. Anyway, welcome to the What Bitcoin Did podcast, which is brought to you by Gemini, the only place I'm using for buying Bitcoin. I'm your host, Peter McCormack, and today I've got Perianne Boring from the Chamber of Digital Commerce on the show. Now, every week we get loads of emails from listeners asking us to cover certain topics. And one of those that keeps coming up over and over again is, will the US get a spot ETF? Now, this is a question Perian has also been asking. And recently, the Chamber of Digital Commerce released a paper looking at the history of spot ETF applications and why they have all been rejected and called into question some of the SEC's reasoning. Now, we read the paper, Danny and I looked through this, and we decided to get Perian onto the show. I'm not entirely sure yet whether I want a spot ETF to happen. Look, I know it would be great for my personal Bitcoin holdings, but I'm still not sure if this is something I really want to happen. But it was great to talk to Perianne about it anyway. We'd love to get some of your feedback. You know you can drop me an email. It's hello at whatbitcoindid.com. It is me who reads them. It isn't Danny. Some of you have been sending emails saying, hi, Danny. Yes, it's me who reads them. I forward someone to Danny. I read some myself. But if you get in touch, I will get back to you. Okay, I'm going to go on to the show now. I hope you enjoy this. And as I said, if you've got any questions, do feel free to reach out to me. So one of your favorite books is a Peter Schiff book. Yeah, well, one of my favorite economics books is a book written by Peter Schiff, How an Economy Grows and Why It Crashes. And it's written almost like a children's book. So I majored in economics at the state-run school, the University of Florida. And the reason, one of the reasons I majored in economics is because you could take all these math classes. And okay. I, that was always my favorite subject. Um, but economics is not math. Economics is human action. It's why you decide to do this over that, why you decide to move uh, to Florida and not California or whatever. It's, you know, it, it, it is, you know, human interaction. Uh, so I think today in the economic field, they highly complicate it yeah. into models that have no real world example. So that's kind of, uh, that book is just kind of fun because it just kind of breaks it down to like very, very, very simple things. Like what is money? How does an economy work? It's not a math problem. Huh. It's, it's, a hu it's human interaction. What is the book called? How an Economy Grows and Why It Crashes. I want to get that book. Danny, remind we me. We should get Chef on to do that. We should. Like, uh, I, I would like to interview Chef on that one. Maybe I, we can co-do that one. We can co-do that one. I, like I have a signed copy of it, actually. Really? Yeah. So I, I like Peter Schiff. Uh, everything about him outside of Bitcoin. Yeah. He, but see, yeah, so I was the same way. So I always, I've... I've read a lot of his books. I've I followed him for years before I even learned about Bitcoin. I followed Peter Schiff. He was one of the people I used to listen to to really get smart on sound monetary policy. Um, but so he he's a traditional and a classic gold bug. His and all of his investments are super tied into gold stuff. 
So he's got a, a, a bias there, a natural bias there. And he would have to kind of walk away from his whole career of promoting gold as, as sound money. He would have to make that shift away from kind of gold being the answer to all of the economic problems to Bitcoin being the answer. And he can't make that shift. It's ironic, really. The shift really. can't make the shift. The shift shift. Sounds yeah, like shift, a dance. Shift. Um, I think he could. I think, I think there are people out there who are... Bitcoiners, there are people out there who are Goldbergs, and there are people out there who understand both. I think the big, a lot of the people of Bitcoin only say, well, eventually uh, Bitcoin will uh, overtake gold and gold will become irrelevant. But I think that we're certainly in a scenario where both are relevant and both can represent some form of sound money, depending on who you are. We should just let the free market decide. We should. Allow all of them to be a, a competing currency and then let people decide what they want to use as a store of value or as a as a means of a transaction. It, it's the one shame about shift. Uh, shift. Well, now I'm saying shift. <laughs> it's the one thing about uh, shame about Peter Shift because he he's amazing when he's not talking about Bitcoin. Yeah. <laughs> and when he talks about Bitcoin, he's talking from a place of arguing against it. And then he's just turned into like a full on troll on Twitter. Like, I know. It's awful. Like I don't even follow him anymore because I'm so annoyed by him. Uh, I don't mind it because I see the trolling, and I think he still offers um, a lot of value to Bitcoin. That's not only in. Uh, sharpening your tools and your arguments for Bitcoin, but actually his understanding of the economy, understanding of the Fed, yeah. understanding of government policy, and we all have a bias. I mean, I have a Bitcoin bias, uh, and checking your bias is really hard. Uh, and also, when you've been wrong so so much about something like Bitcoin, you find it's very hard, I think, for someone to walk that back. And he was introduced to Bitcoin when it was like a, a dollar by, yeah. was it by Max Kaiser or something? I think so, yeah. You know, and then he had the debate with Eric Voorhees when it was, what, say $30. You know, he could have made un, unreal amounts of money. I know, unreal right? amounts of money. And to walk that back is very hard. But then at the same time, he's not poor. Um, he but he could have been a lot more rich had he listened to people like or Eric Voorhees and Max Kaiser back 10 years ago. It's the same. So I've, it's kind of the same thing with Andrew Ross Sorkin, who I have a lot of respect for. Is he the New York Times guy? No, he's on Squawk Box. He's one of the like, he's gotten a lot better, I would say, in the past year. But he's, he's very critical of Bitcoin. And yes. I've gotten into tiffs with him on air. And it's like, what? Um, but kind of my theory is that you know, he was one of the first people in network broadcast news to interview Bitcoin people. He interviewed the Winklevoss in 2013 and he was like, this is, you know, he wasn't into it, but you know, he missed the opportunity to buy Bitcoin back then what Bitcoin was like under a hundred bucks. Mm -hmm. So he missed one of the most, uh, um, the biggest opportunity, investment opportunities of his entire career. He just missed it. So why would you turn around now? You know what I'm going to ask you to bring up now, don't you? What's that? The what? salty coefficient. Yeah, bring up the salty <laughs> coefficient. Do you know the salty coefficient? No. We interviewed this guy called Craig, Craig Warmke. He's a uh, philosopher. And he, he wrote a whole paper talking about how um, specifically people who had the opportunity to invest in Bitcoin early on and make life-changing amounts of money uh, specifically journalists he refers to, that because they didn't, over time they become more salty. Yeah. And therefore their articles become... Uh, they, Even worse. Yeah, more gross. Yeah, here you go. Time. Here's the saltiness. Okay. Coefficient. All right. I see. Um, and I always think Nathaniel Popper is a really good example of this because he wrote... Um, was it was it called Digital Gold? I can't remember what that book it was called. Yeah, so that's a good book, though. Yeah, it's a great book. It's the first book I read on Bitcoin and... Uh, you know, Nathaniel Popper has now just become, I think, almost uh, a troll against Bitcoin. I mean, I think 
I mean, I'm not a Coinbase fan, but his piece when he went after Coinbase was just terrible. He just went, it was the most woke attack on Bitcoin and Coinbase ever. I just think, again, he probably forgot to buy some Bitcoin. Well, I think that Salty Co. is also going to impact politicians. So, uh-huh. if you, so if you look at kind of the makeup of policymakers, and maybe I'll just kind of use the U.S. Congress as an example, but I think it's pretty emblematic of all, like, legislatures. Like, we today in U.S. Congress, we've got maybe... 40, about, you know, a couple dozen members of Congress that are like real champions for this technology. They understand it. They understand how the technology works and they want to make sure that the U.S. is positioned to receive the benefits of this ecosystem. And then you've got like, and, and that group is, is bipartisan. It's people across the aisle. Mm-hmm. And then, and then you have a group of people who are like very strong detractors. And those are almost exclusively um, very progressive liberals. And that's a much smaller group. It's just a handful of people, maybe a half a dozen people. The squad. The the squad. That's Brad Sherman, Senator Elizabeth Warren, and they are just anti this stuff. Like, they hate it. Yeah. And then everybody else is kind of, like, in the middle. But but how does... (laughs) So this is just tech, Bitcoin is just technology. You know, it's no different than electricity or the light bulb or the printing press. It's not good. It's not bad. It's a technology. It's people determining how they use it is what can be good or bad. So if you use Bitcoin to well, buy. Well, it's a threat. Well, I mean, it's, it's a technology. It is a technology. It's software. Like, hmm. like it, it, doesn't, it doesn't have feelings. It doesn't have intentions. Right, and but so, it's what it represents, which is a threat. Because is there any technology that has ever uh, received this kind of higher bar that it must adhere to? Like yesterday, we had Nick Carter in, and we were going through the White House report that he uh, annotated, which was not only very badly put together, uh, very badly. The citations they used were terrible. Um, um, but it sets this bar that Bitcoin or Bitcoin companies have to hit that is way higher than other companies have to hit. And that to me was one of the questions I was going to come to you with is everything we seem to do, there seems to be this very high bar that Bitcoin has to meet. And I'm trying to understand why. And I think mainly it's because it's a technology that can make people supremely rich because not only is it technology, it's a money and people feel like they missed out. Yeah, I mean, this industry is definitely, from from the regulatory perspective, I mean, there are very specific examples where we can see the this industry and this asset class is held to a higher standard. And I would argue that's discriminatory. It definitely is discriminatory, but it, but it, it is also a threat. I don't think the technology is a threat. Perhaps the people's the ways in which people will use it could be a threat. So it could be a threat. So, I mean, the one thing that's so beautiful about Bitcoin is if you don't agree with the central bank economic planning regime that we're all currently under, you can peacefully opt out of that today by using this technology. So again, the technology doesn't have any intentions, but a person's intention of saying, you know, I don't want to go to a bank. I don't really want to be subject to a small group of people uh, deflating the value of my hard earned money. So I'm going to choose to put everything in, in, in Bitcoin instead. Um, I mean that uh, how someone would use the technology could be a threat. Which is also a very American idea. I, I've always I've always seen Bitcoin as a very American idea. 
the values of Americans, the fact that you can opt out, that you can, you know, w w I think in the UK, we're a little bit more subservient to our government. Uh, and my understanding and studying, limited studying of the US and the establishment of your constitution was that uh, you're a little bit more like uh, the, the government serves the people. Not so much recently, uh, which why I think Bitcoin is a great technology in that it allows perhaps a reset of what uh, American values. Um, but it just feels like a very American idea. I, that's why I like it. That's why I like coming over here and talking to people about it. Well, I think at its core, if you could describe Bitcoin in one word, it would be freedom. Yes, that's very good. So what was your attraction to it? So you studied economics, but anybody who studies economics uh, at school doesn't really study Austrian economics. <laughs> studied Keynesian economics. So when you first... And I, I learned that on my journey. And yeah. that's... Um, so I, I grew up... We're in my home state. I grew up here in Florida. I'm from Lakeland, Florida, which is central Florida. Very different from Miami. You're a gator. I'm a Florida Gator. Went to the University of Florida. Um, and did, I, did they win yesterday? They played Missouri, right? We, we did win yesterday. We watched the game on our phone in the car on the way up here. Because we went to uh, a bar to watch my soccer team. And they said we had to be done by... So you're what, team? I'm trying to help them understand. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm speaking the local language. Come on, man. Uh, my football team. You understand what I mean by my football team, right? Soccer. Yes. Actual football where you use a foot yeah, to on, kick the ball. To kick a ball. <laughs> yes. Yeah. No pads. Right. Um, uh, so we had to be done by 12. Yeah. And we were like, there's no problem. It kicks off at 10. Yeah, it's an hour and a half game. We'll be done. And then our linesman got injured and we had a, like a 15, 20 minute delay. So the game normally finishes on 90 minutes. Ours finished at what? Like it was like 110 or 110 something. minutes. And then the bar just, they said, look, this place is going to get busy. And it just filled up with all these you know, young Gator fans. Oh, you went to one of the Gator bars. No, yeah, one of the Gator bars, but we got out. So we have Gator, like the, the University of Florida Alumni Association, like in every town, you can join the Alumni Association. There'll be like a Gator bar. Oh, right. And the association will organize with the bar and say, we're going to invite all of our UF alumni here. We're going to watch the game together. It must have been one of those because they even had someone selling merch and stuff. Yeah, yeah. yeah. They did, That's, yeah. Oh, man, y'all should have invited me. I would have gone to that. <laughs> they, uh, so they won? <laughs> well, we did. So we didn't stay. We had to come and, you know, make a, a show with Nick. Um, but uh, so they won. They beat they, Missouri. 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 Yeah. Yeah. Fuck Missouri. <laughs> I don't even know where Missouri is. <laughs> is Missouri where they filmed that, um, what's that uh, series uh, with a lake? The Ozarks? Yeah, Ozark. is that Missouri? I don't know. Is the Ozarks Missouri? I don't know. Right. Yeah. I'm from Florida, not my state. But Mizzou was just brought into the SEC a couple of years ago. So okay. the, the Southeastern Conference is like the dominant college football conference. The SEC. The SEC. Not how, how to be apt. confused with the Securities <laughs> and Exchange Commission. That's the, yeah, different SEC. But the SEC, in terms of, like, the revenue they bring in, it's more than all the other conferences put together. So, like, the Southeastern Conference, like, dominates college football in a huge way. Are they paying players yet? No, they don't play players. Hmm. No, not not college. So, these college people make... Because I, I watched a film which alluded to this about how a lot of players... that the, These college conferences make a lot of money, and the players help them make a lot of money, but not everyone makes it as a pro footballer and they get injuries and yeah. yada yada. And, it's and a big debate. There's an argument they should be paid. And well, they just changed the law to where the players can now be paid on their likeness so they can have different types of sponsorships, deals and things like that. I think that's right that they should be paid. You should pay people when they work. Yeah, I yeah. agree with that. Yeah. Not a fan of slavery. All right. Not America. 
We've got a coffee delivery. Yeah, we've got a coffee delivery. That's the noise. All right, coffee break. It's 9 a.m., so we're doing coffee instead of scotch. We can do scotch. I don't think I should do scotch after yesterday. Thank you. Here we go. Delivered. I interrupted you. I, I prefer talking about sports sometimes. Sorry, I interrupted you. So you're, you're, you're from the state of Florida. Oh, we were talking about my journey yeah. into Bitcoin. Okay, so that's, we were not talking about sports. We just went on a tangent. So, yeah, I went to the University of Florida, um, studied economics. And uh, for me, so I was in college during the 2008 financial crisis and the state of Florida got rocked by the financial crisis um, because a lot of it was the housing market going bust. And well, that's one of Florida's largest uh, economies here. And so literally every single person I knew was impacted in a big way, just in my, we're a middle-class family. So nobody went hungry. Nobody was um, homeless or anything, but my, uh, my grandmother lived with my aunt, she still lives with my aunt and uncle and their house went underwater and they had to move. They were completely displaced, um, which was very unfortunate. And they had downsides and, you know, have cousins and it was just like a huge loss for them. And it was really sad to, to, to see that, um, the company my brother worked for went out of business. So my, my brother lost his job. Um, he's gainfully employed now again, like everyone's fine, but seeing how this impacts real people, um, to had, it had a big impression on me at a young age. My parents, um, we did not, my my parents didn't inherit anything. They worked for everything they had. Half of their life savings just evaporated with the stock market collapse. So I'm in school studying economics, reading these math books written by Ben Bernanke, who was the chairman of the Fed at the time. And me and a couple of my friends were like, this isn't explaining what's happening in our hometowns right now. And we started getting in arguments with the professors because like there was a lot of friction in the classroom. And so there was a small group of us where we said, okay, like we really do want to understand what's happening. And we weren't getting the answers in school. So, um, we started, you know, just searching whatever information on the internet and in the library that we could find. And the first person we found who was able to explain what was going on was this guy who was running for president. It was, um, actually an OBGYN doctor, um, running for president who was talking about ending the fed and auditing the fed. And that was Dr. Ron Paul. Wow. And okay. so uh, it was, was really... Was he an independent at that point or was he running as a... He ran, he was running under, for the Republican nomination. Okay. Yeah. And so he, but he had, you know, a very large platform. Thankfully, you know, we were able to find him, but he was able to answer a lot of questions. And if you, if you go onto his, um, start reading about him and his talks, he would talk about um, Austrian economics. So then we got introduced to all the great writers of Austrian op- economics from Mises and Rothbard. And, and that complete, that, that, that was all, that was the answer. And I, I'll tell you the thing that was so difficult for me that really put, um, just a really bad taste in my mouth was that the school didn't even bother to tell you that economics, it's not, it's not science. It's not math where there's just one answer, like two plus two equals four. Like there's no other way to do that equation. Right. Um, it, it's a theory. Economics is theory and there's different theories of economics, but they only teach you one and they don't mm. tell you that there's others out there. And which is the one they teach you? Well, of course, Keynesian economics. And who does that benefit? It, it benefits the current system in place. Exactly. 
Um, and we, we looked into that too. We're like, you know, why is this? And, um, I wouldn't quote this stat, but it's, uh, you have, I'd have to go back and look and see if I can find it. But when I did the research on it several years ago, um, I found that, uh, it was up to 50% of all PhD economists today. And a lot of those are working in universities and in academia or in government or other places, but about 50% of all economists working today are, are somehow on the feds payroll. Incentives matter. Yeah. Yeah. We've yeah. been talking a lot about incentives recently. So I moved to Washington when I, so my senior year of college, I, hold on, can we just roll back a second? So, so with your college professors, would this be in class or outside of class where you would challenge them? And, and did you specifically ask them about Austrian economics and why are you not teaching us this? Why? Because the, my, my view is, look, I dropped out of university and the university I wasn't to was particularly great, but I look at American universities with like a certain amount of romanticism because of Hollywood where you would see these amazing professors who would, you, uh, who would create debate within the classes and inspire their kids. And I just would always imagine if you went in, you would be in these big auditoriums where, you know, uh, big amphitheater auditoriums where you'd have these electric debates and they would inspire you. So I would hope you would go into one of these and you would all be there debating these issues. Did that, did that happen? We have, so, I mean, at a, a Florida state run school, and these are very large schools. So we yeah. had over 45,000 students at the university wow. of Florida. So your first couple of years, you're in these big auditoriums with your, there's hundreds of people in your class. So you don't really get a lot of like one-on-one -on -one time to have conversations with the professor. You don't really have like those debates in the classroom, but by junior, senior year, the classes get a lot smaller. And so by senior year, they, they were smaller. We could have more in-depth conversations. Um, I, I don't really, I mean, there was definitely friction in these conversations. I just remember we, us being like really unsatisfied with the answers. So you didn't have Robin Williams Dead Poet Society? No, no, not not in, in the public school system here Damn in Florida. It. Definitely not. That's why I imagine no. it's always like it. So, okay, so um, you, you finished your, uh, you finished, you completed university, you went to... I did graduate yeah. from college. The only only one of my siblings, I graduated from high school. <laughs> huh. I'm, I'm the only one who dropped out. <laughs> all right, all right. Yeah. Um, okay, so you went, you went to so Washington. So senior year, so, uh, so, ha so did this kind of study of, you know, what's happening in the economy, uh, got to under you know uh, uh, was introduced to uh, Congressman Ron Paul, Dr. Mm -hmm. Ron Paul, who was running for president, and um, what I learned on that in independent journey of what happened in the financial system, what's going on in the economy, how does our economy work? Um, I was um, very upset. <laughs> Uh, and I really did not feel like the, the world we were living in represented the values that I, I was taught in my public school education. And I wanted to fight for something better. So I applied to be a White House intern. I was the only person in the state of Florida that interned in the White House that term I was there. And um, after that, I went to Capitol Hill and worked on the Hill. And I was fighting for a better economic and financial future. That's at, that's what I decided I was going to do with my life. I was going to advocate for a better economic policy. And I'm still on that journey today. But yeah. for the first several years, you know, it was looking at how do we get to more sound money policies. And on that journey, I learned about Bitcoin. 
So, so this would have been under Obama. So I was I interned at the White House uh, when pre- when Obama was president. And so, when you intern at the White House, are, are you? actually working inside the White House. Help me understand. Yeah, so you're in the executive office. Um, Of course, in terms of like the physical buildings, there's lots of buildings beyond just that one white house where the the Oval Office is. But you're ingrained into that part of what they teach you when when you get to intern at the White House is how the White House works. And there's a lot of different offices from the National Economic Council, the Office of Science and Technology Policy. That's the paper yeah, the that Nick, paper, Nick was, yeah. that did. Um, so that office. You have um, an advanced team who helps organize the schedule. There's all these offices. Um, and then you get to kind of rotate through a couple of them. And were you pro-Obama when he came in? Because you're from a red state. I did not come from a political family. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I would say at that time, I, I probably would not have been able to, like, truly define what my, how I would identify politically. Today, I am a solid libertarian. I'm like a Ron Paul libertarian, which is neither um, Democrat or Republican. So what was that? Can be mildly Republican. There are some synergies between some of the ideas. But it also has synergies on both sides. Okay. So libertarian takes, it takes pieces of of. Democratic politics and Republican politics. Actually, in fairness, Lynn Alden's tweet thread the other day yeah. is probably a fair representation of that. Yeah. 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 Okay. Um, and when you were working there, did you become skeptical that any change could happen or did you become, did you manage to actually achieve anything that you hoped you would achieve? Yeah. So when I was interning at the granite you're an intern so you know you're just kind of like barely at the top of the iceberg in terms of what you get to do in the couple months that you're there i would say the one of the most important things i took from that experience is someone who grew up in you know central florida from a middle class family you know worked for the things that i had had a lot of great opportunities though have been incredibly um uh, fortunate in my life, but being able to meet the first African American president of the United States, and I had the opportunity to shake President Obama's hand and have a conversation with him. Um, that was in that moment. My biggest takeaway was that you can do anything you set your mind to in this world and in this country. If he could become the president of the United States, then me, just a you know a girl from Central Florida, uh, you know. I can change the world too. And so that's that's still the journey that, that I'm on today. And today I'm dedicated to doing that through Bitcoin. Well, I think that's a uniquely interesting thing about America. And I don't know what it is or why it works, but uh, I've built the entire world. Well, everything me and Danny have built with this podcast, the entirety is, if it's happened in the US, we've built this success and career in the US. I go back to the UK, no one gives a fuck. We, we've, <laughs> I've had no success in the UK. You haven't had any Australia, but we come here and there's like, and I think what it is is, I think in the US, people celebrate success and they want you to win. But they want to win alongside you. I think someone like the UK, if, like people kind of slightly resent winning and they'd like want to crush you and then beat you. And it's weird, but we do it with a really nice smile. We're really civil about it. Yeah, I mean, I think that maybe the, the socialist influence mm. in 
the economy and the culture. And it's, it's probably more the EU than the UK, although I would say the UK has more socialist policies than the United States, EU more so than the UK. Um, but that is one of my like pet peeves when I'm debating poli- po- policy with people and you have these folks who are saying, you know, we should just socialize everything and have the government just take care of everything. I'm like, well, that, that is socialism. And mm-hmm. And if you're pro-socialism, you know, go to go, go go live in Paris, like go live in this beautiful city and go live that socialist lifestyle. But that's not what America was founded on. But democracy should allow change. It should allow change, but with limited government influence. Of course. I, I, I still think I've now experienced the, the healthcare system in both countries. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, can I tell you the differences I noticed, which will probably tell people what All right, happened. let's have a healthcare debate. Well, so, no, we're not going to have a debate because I'm, I'm a terrible debater. But um, just so people know, you and I were meant to record uh, an interview yesterday and I had to postpone it because I have a thing called SVT. I've talked about it on the show before. I have these SVTs. I'm not sure if it's a condition, but basically my heart just goes a little crazy sometimes. Um, about once a year, I have to go to hospital uh, when it happens just to check that I'm not having a heart attack and dying. And we had one yesterday, so I was sat there and I was getting these chest pains. I said to Danny, and then suddenly I deteriorated very quickly. My lips went cold. Uh, I started trembling, so I was like, shit, we need to go to hospital. Just, I'm used to this, so I'm not thinking, the first time it ever happened, I thought I was having a heart attack. It was, God, eight years ago. Now I'm like, oh, fuck, it's another one of these. One day it'll actually be a heart attack. That'll be the end of the show. It'll be well practiced. It'll be fine. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. and uh, and you'll turn up and it'll be Danny interviewing you. Um, I actually told that to Danny yesterday. I was like, well, you can interview me. He's like, yeah, no. (laughs) If I could could use the cameras, it would have been on. (laughs) Actually, it was funny. So me and and Jeremy were were sat there in the hospital and... we actually had that conversation because there is a conversation. Like me, me and Danny have have a plan. Like if anything should happen to me, you know, what happens to the show is it is a it's an asset which has value. Therefore, um, my children have an inheritance. Obviously, my son and daughter are not going to present the show. Although Scarlett would be pretty fucking awesome. She'd be good. So we've all, often talked about who would take over, and we've suggested names who who could be offered the slot and host the show. But actually, uh, Danny's now the natural successor because he's now part of the show. Me, me and Jeremy had that conversation and said, actually, it would be a different show. It'd be it'd be a little bit more intelligent. Danny's better on on the financial side to me than me. What but, Danny does? Yeah, what Danny does. <laughs> I've been trying to poison him for ages. <laughs> <laughs> but 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 Danny isn't as funny, so it would be a bit more drive. Um, <laughs> but anyway, so uh, so anyway, I'm I'm so I'm in hosp- in hospital, and, and obviously I'm facing the reality as like, okay, I'm gonna have to get a bill here. And firstly, I'm like, shit, did I get travel insurance? I think I've got travel insurance. So what happens is in both scenarios, you turn up, you spend a long, a lot of time waiting. They know most people coming in with chest pains these days aren't a heart attack. If you have a heart attack, you are actually having a heart attack and you need resuscitation. Most people come with chest pains aren't having, some are early stage, but aren't having a heart attack. And so they, they make you sit around and you get an ECG. They call it an EKG in American hospitals, even though in medical training they call it an ECG, suddenly when you're in hospital they call it an EKG. So they strap you up, they do a blood test, and um, and then this is where the differences happen. The blood test in the UK, they take three vials of blood. In the US, they took seven vials of blood. Uh, in the UK, you sit and wait for your blood test, Yeah, you have your uh, uh, ECG, the doctor says, you know, what's going on in your life, and then you go home. But here, uh, I was given paracetamol and I was given nitroglycin, was it, Jeremy? Mm-hmm. And I said, huh, so in the UK, I'm not given this. And she said, yes. And funny enough, she, she was from Manchester. 
Uh, did you tell you that? Yeah, Jeremy yeah. told me. And she said, yeah, the difference here is people sue you if you get things wrong. I was yeah. like, huh, okay. And so, um, and then I get, yeah, when I leave the UK, you just go, we're here, they give me a whole pack. Uh, so, and then obviously you get a bill here. So the, the differences are, are, I think, the, because our system's socialist, they keep it, they want to give you the minimum to save cost. Whereas in the US, because you have to pay for medical care, I think they want to give you more stuff so they can raise the bill. Raise the bill and also um, prevent, litigate, reduce the risk of litigate. We are a very litigious yes. culture. That, that is true. And yeah. that is not a good thing. From the outside as well, the place was pretty gross. The, yeah, the place was gross. So I actually asked Jeremy that. I said to Jeremy, I said, um, is this a typical hospital? He said, no, this is a bit more rundown. But it was way more rundown than any hospital I've been in the UK, which surprised me because my picture of America is you're paying for uh, you know, medical care. I assumed it'd all be like some spa hotel yeah very clean <laughs> you gotta walls. pay extra for that yeah very clean <laughs> you uh, have to make a, a big donation get a wing built in your name for that so so what stood out to me but like generally speaking the hospitals look the same feel the same have the same uh staffing issues have the same response times everything feels almost exactly the same but the money changes the incentives we're trying to cut cost in the uk America's trying to make money. And so I think they try. And that's another interesting thing. So when you go to a spa, you go for a massage, get your nails done, you look at the menu and you get a price list. When you have medical treatment, you just get a bill at the end. You've got yeah. no idea. You can't say, I don't want the blood test. or. And I've, I still don't know. I still don't know how much my bill is going to be. I assume it's going to be about $1,000. But it could be $5,000. Yeah. So. Yeah. So I was in the White House the day the Affordable Care Act was signed into law. And I was there for all of the campaign work that went to get that bill passed. Uh, so our healthcare system, it's not a like free market healthcare system. Nope. It is it is a blend of heavy funding from government and private sector. So we're kind of in the middle and it's there's the worst of both. Yeah, you get the worst of both. Yeah, it's not it there, there, there are actually after that stent, I, I thought about going into medical school because I said like our healthcare system is broken and it'd be good to have a doctor in the family, but it's not really my interest or my field of study, but our medical system is absolutely broken. I also think ours is broken. Yeah. Um, but the things that stand out to me are that when I'm in the UK and I have one of my SVTs, I go to hospital, I wait and I go home. Uh, I had I have travel insurance here, uh, but if I didn't have insurance and I wasn't particularly you know, financially secure, I can see a scenario. I go, I don't want that thousand dollar bill, so I'm just gonna stay at home. I'm gonna I'm gonna breathe and meditate or whatever I need to calm myself down. But there may come a time when one of those SVTs is not an SVT and I have a heart attack. Yeah. So that thing I don't like, and this is just this is just a blood test and an ECG. Yeah. There are obviously other things that are particularly more expensive. And as antithetical as this is to Bitcoin, and as much as it triggers some people who are Bitcoiners, I do like the fact in the UK, anyone, whoever you are, wherever you are, you can go and get uh, medical treatment. I think our system is broken in that there are people who can afford to pay for private medical, and they should because private medical uh, cover in, in care in the UK is, is amazing. It's unbelievably good. And it's cheaper than health insurance in the US. 
I also think there are lots of inefficiencies, but I like, that's the part of socialism I like, is medical care for all. Because I think of a country as its resources, and some people have had a chronological benefit to accessing earlier resources, or you know, my, my kids will have to worry about money less than me because of my work, and my parents too. There's a chronological benefit, there is a luck, there's all these different factors, but we're all, we all build our success off the same set of resources. I do like, I do like the idea that people get universal healthcare. And I'm sure you don't. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not going to advocate for socialist policies. I certainly, I mean, that has been one of the biggest debates here in the United States of my generation. What do you think the the perfect system is? I'm always an advocate of limited government. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I think the government's role really should be limited to basically defense protecting the borders, protecting our communities, having a solid rule of law. But having the government... Because the private sector, the free market, is going to be more efficient than bureaucrats planning anything or running anything. This show is brought to you by the Texas Blockchain Council. Now, on November the 17th and 18th, the Texas Blockchain Council is putting on the Texas Blockchain Summit in Bitcoin country, Austin, Texas. This event will be two days of thought leadership for Bitcoin. Day one is all that any Texas Bitcoin miner could ask for. Top Bitcoin CEOs and their teams will be hanging out in Austin. Day two is where we will hear from top policy leaders in the US, both federal and state legislators, senators, House of Representatives, and CFTC commissioners. So what more could you ask for? Now, I'm not just promoting this. I will be attending the event in Austin, hanging out with my Texas Bitcoin buddies, and interviewing a very important person. So make sure you book your ticket and check out this event. And also, if you come along, come say hello. It'd be good to meet some of you. To find out more, please head over to TexasBlockchainSummit.org. That is TexasBlockchainSummit.org. Next up, we have Gemini, who I am using for buying and selling Bitcoin, but I'm only buying now. It's a buying time. We're holding right. I'm also using the Gemini app for buying the dips, and I set up my DCA with twice monthly buys of Bitcoin. Both the app and the website make buying and selling Bitcoin super easy, and Gemini has invested in building industry-leading security since day one. Gemini is also running a special offer for listeners of what Bitcoin did. All you need to do is head over to gemini.com forward slash WBD, and new customers will get $20 in Bitcoin when they trade $100 or more on Gemini. Now, if you want to find out more, please head over to Gemini.com forward slash WBD. That is G-E-M-I-N-I dot com forward slash WBD. Next up, it is the BCB Group. Now, BCB Group provide online business banking services for companies in the Bitcoin industry. And yes, I am a customer of BCB too. They heard about my difficulty with finding a payment service provider that understands Bitcoin, and they reached out to me. Now, BCB's clients include major exchanges, market makers, funds, and miners active in the UK and Europe, but they are expanding globally. They also have this amazing network called Blink, which facilitates instant free payments between BCB clients in all supported currencies. Now, listen, I know some of you have had trouble with this too. So if you are looking for a banking provider who understands and supports Bitcoin companies rather than creating hurdles, then like me, you will want to become a BCB customer. Now, if you want to find out more, please head over to bcbgroup.com forward slash Peter, which is bcbgroup.com forward slash Peter. Also today, we have Wasabi. Now, Wasabi is what I'm using to keep my Bitcoin private. With the release of Wasabi 2.0, Bitcoin privacy is now effortless as a wallet has introduced privacy by default. Rather than having to choose to coin join, this can all be done automatically 
So you just need to receive your Bitcoin, wait for the coin join, and then you can spend freely. Or the magic happens automatically in the background, which was a massive UX improvement. You also get additional privacy through Tor integration into Wasabi, so you don't leak your IP address. There is also no minimum denomination, so you can coin join any amount, and there is no more change, so any amount you receive from a coin join is private. Privacy is something I've been taking a lot more seriously recently, and Wasabi 2.0 makes it so easy. To find out more, please head over to wasabiwallet.io, which is W-A-S-A-B-I-W-A-L-L-E-T dot I-O. There is that trade-off, though, between uh, efficiency of private institutions and then the warped incentives of private institutions, private companies. So whereas uh, uh, a company who, you know, a company is particularly more efficient, you, I always bring up the example of DuPont, classic case of DuPont, a company that poisoned the waters, led to the... Uh, cancers and deaths to a lot of people within their communities because they're just a greedy corporation. Now, uh, I'm, I'm kind of with you. I, I think we should have much more smaller and limited government and their role is to protect communities. I think healthcare is protecting your community. Yeah, and I think when you, you have, tr- and we haven't really had this probably since the founding of the United States because you're constantly getting more government influence as time goes on in different industries yeah. and different businesses. But I don't think we would have these big businesses, these companies that are too big to fail or to get to a point where they can cause systemic risk unless they have backing and influence by the government, unless they have regulatory capture, unless they have special agreements with the government uh, to maybe share your information, share your data, provide surveillance of its users in exchange for being able to grow and become bigger and make more money for shareholders. So that that's the crony capitalism, mm-hmm. which is very much where we are today in the United States. And that's not the answer, and that's certainly not what I'm advocating for. I think if you go back to a true free market economy, we would have um, more community-driven businesses because businesses are going to be incentivized to do do the best for the people around them, for the people that they serve. And it's really yeah. hard to do that in, in mass. So I think you have more community communities of, of, of businesses. And, uh, and I think that's also led to the degradation of a lot of our morals as a society. I, I actually agree with you a lot. Uh, I, I think you could rename it Pelosi capitalism rather than no, 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 that would not. No, this is like Ron Paul capitalism. No, I'm, no. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, <laughs> I'm being sarcastic. Um, but no, I, I can agree with you because there's, there's loads of examples you can see. Um, you can see the benefits uh, Amazon has when they try and negotiate preferential tax treatment because of the creation of jobs, which uh, ends up eroding the local businesses there, which they have, which they can destroy. Uh, I can, I completely agree with you. You saw it all during COVID, where. Uh, large-scale companies could very quickly put in systems and uh, ordering procedures that allowed them to operate during COVID, where small mom-and-dad businesses couldn't. We saw so many collapse. I yeah, am, and so many industries. We have oligopolies, where just a couple of very large businesses control everything. You don't have those small community-driven businesses. And we're also seeing the insidious influence. I mean, we saw everything yesterday with PayPal. Yeah. Did you see that? I did. I saw a really great tweet where somebody said, I'm going to be uh, leaving, I'm closing my PayPal account. Uh, you don't get to tell me what I can say. You don't get to steal my money. We're not China. And it was a, it was, it was a very good tweet. But I, I completely empathize with you. I, I, 
I think I'm becoming more libertarian over time. It's just we don't have in the UK, we don't have a culture of libertarianism. It's not something I didn't, I'd never heard. Well, it's a very small culture here in the United States. I mean, when I worked on Capitol Hill, I felt like a total freak as somebody who was advocating for like saying we got to do something about 15 years ago. I was walking the halls of Congress trying to get people to coalesce around, like we've got to do something about inflation. Nobody gave a shit about inflation. 15. Like I was like a pariah. People were like, you are freaking nuts. <laughs> and today According to one of the last CNN polls, this is the inflation is the number one issue for American voters today is inflation. Wow. It happens very quickly, very, very quickly. And once it gets out of control, it's really hard to rein that back in. So I, I think this, you know, libertarian, the idea of getting government out of everything mm. is something that is may become more popular, but I don't know. I was like, I thought there was a lot of setback during the last election when you saw all these young people get behind Bernie Sanders, who I would argue was the socialist candidate. But I think a lot of the young people were like, oh, he wants to get rid of all my student loan debt. So that's good for me. I'm going to vote for that. But that's the complete opposite yeah. of libertarian. So I, th I, so I don't one, know. I think one of the differences as well is like the freedom is a very important word for Americans. It's not something we discuss in the UK. It's not, not the same. Not in the same way, but um, Americans uh, will often talk about their freedoms being eroded. Uh, politicians, well, we don't really tend to talk like that. We tend to talk more about togetherness. We're, we're, we're collectivists. I think we, we talk, should talk about it more, though. No, we should. We absolutely should. Well, the people who cared about it left and came here generations ago. So the people who are still there, that's the... The, the families are the people who fought against that concept. So I think that that makes sense. But also when you talk about it, you come across as a psycho. <laughs> like my friends think I'm a psycho. My, I had a massive argument one Christmas with my brother talking about some of these issues. Um, they, they think I'm a conspiracy. Like, and, and by the way... Well, that was me working on Capitol Hill 15 years ago, talking about inflation. But imagine the leap. The people who listen to my show, the Americans, they think I'm a libtard. And then in the UK, <laughs> my friends think I'm a psycho conspiracy theorist. So imagine the leap to go from, from one to the other. I I'm, get it. I'm walking, I get it. I'm walking this middle line, trying to, trying to get the people of the show not to hate me and think I'm a massive socialist, whilst at the same time trying to orange pill people who they really would have an issue with. And that, that walk in that line from one to the other is very difficult. So when I, after leaving the Hill and, and then becoming an advocate for Bitcoin and like going back to a lot of my old friends who still work, you know, who, who were still on the Hill and saying, hey, like would love to talk about Bitcoin with you. Um, definitely felt like a psycho back in 2013, 2014, where everyone's like, okay, I heard about Bitcoin. I heard about these meetups. What are you guys really doing? Like, what are, you are you okay? Like, what is going on? <laughs> are you in a cult? <laughs> Maybe, a little so, bit. So the Bitcoiners were right. Let's just be very fair about this. I think we can say objectively they were right. They've been talking about inflation for a long time, way before these transitory eight, nine, yeah, ten. Yeah, a decade yeah. before it showed up in a CNN poll. And then here it is. We have very high inflation. We have a lot of issues in the economy. I mean, Bitcoin was born in the 2008 financial crisis. We know, we know what Satoshi wrote in the Genesis block. And we know that everything's happened since. And they all predicted it. So... What I would ask you is, there is being right theoretically, but then there's also believing that the system, a system built on Bitcoin will actually fix these problems. Do you, do you believe both? 
So I believe this technology can address many of the systemic issues in our global financial and our monetary system today. Absolutely. I mean, at its core, I think Keynesian economics is evil. Mm -hmm. Agreed. And what inflation is, and this is, you know, another thing that really upset me as I was learning about economics, understanding how these things work. Inflation is theft. Make no mistake. It is the government stealing from you. Yep from its people. And if you think about that, well, what, what is money to, you know, most people who work for wages, just normal people, not the super rich, you work, you get a paycheck. Most people, you know, you put it in your bank account and then the government prints more money. So the money in your bank account that represents the hours you worked is being taken from you. Money is purchasing power. But so it's, it's almost a form of slavery. Of course. I mean, you work to earn money to buy stuff. And then they take the money from you. They it's take like taking money. your work from you. Because they, they, you can't get that time back. They double dip. Yeah. So they tax you. Because they tax you too. Yeah. They tax so, you. And then they shadow tax you. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I completely agree. And, and so, but what, what, when we talk about inflation today, and I wrote an article about this eight years ago. Um, about, you know, what is, when we say what is inflation, so when the Fed's, you know, says the, the inflation rate is whatever percent this this month or this quarter, they, they're talking about the CPI, the Consumer Price Index. And so when I worked on the Hill, I actually had the opportunity, I was like, all right, I'm going to figure out what the CPI thing is, because it, it sounds like BS, because when you're in school, they teach you inflation is the mo- is the supply of money, how much money is in circulation, right? And so the Fed's printed what like forty percent more money in the past, you know, couple yep. years since COVID. So I would argue inflation's more like forty plus percent, but the government will say no, it's like four, six, or eight. I mean, it's changing, but we're in that ra- we've been in that range for the past couple of years. So the CPI is just. Um, it's a basket of consumer goods that people purchase. And it's a very, very big basket of stuff. It's all sorts of stuff. It's, it's a lot of food and groceries and commodities, things consumers buy. So I, I, I sat down with a statistician at the Bureau of Labor Statistics to ask some questions like, how do you, like, wh- what is the formula? And it's, it's actually not publicly available. They won't even make it available for members of Congress and their staff. Why is that? <laughs> Didn't get an answer on that. <sighs> and then if you also look at over a period of time at the goods, they as things like beef get more expensive. So previously it was a more premium cut of beef is what would be used in the formula. And then they would change it to a, a, a lesser costly cut of beef, like ground beef. But is that, because there's two ways to look at that. They, you could say they've done that because uh, they want to uh, uh, reduce the impact of the inflationary figures on their calculation. Or you could say they've priced people out of the premium cut now, so they can't use it. Well, th- well see, we don't know because we don't have the opportunity, the public doesn't have the opportunity to look at these formulas to really understand that. But there's definitely a lot of tools that they have to make the numbers more favorable or to, to, to manipulate the numbers. So it's really important, I think, just for normal people People who don't, you know, have the opportunity to, uh, you know, spend hundreds of hours reading and studying Austrian economics just to know basic things about, well, what exactly is inflation? How am I subjected to it? 
how do I protect myself from that? How do I plan for my future? And I think that is the opportunity of, of, of Bitcoin because it is a way to protect yourself from that type of influence, government influence in our money, which is something that's at the end of the day, it's, 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 it's your work. Yeah, so we've just made a film about inflation. Me and Danny sat down the other day to write the script uh, for the monologues over the top. And one of the things we talked about is inflation is personal. There is no formula that can explain it or, or can calculate inflation for everyone. And it's a, it's a pointless number. What you spend your money on is entirely different from what I spend my money on. And, and, and actually, this is where it should get quite easy because you should be able to Create the list of things you buy, how much you spend on rent, car, yeah, uh, food. You should be able to put that in and then calculate what your personal inflation number is. That should be very easy. And I think we would all probably expect that to come in at around 20% now, perhaps in the last year. And I think that's what we need is your personal inflation number. Not some, I mean, this is what Eric Weinstein was talking about for mm-hmm. a long time to us. He's like, inflation is personal. It is. Yeah, no, that's, that's an interesting idea. Yeah. People sharing that. I actually, I read, um, I saw a tweet not that long ago from a business owner in, in the EU who said my, um, they, it was a, a restaurant owner and they said their electric bill was double what it was the month before. That's it, lucky. almost a different, uh, kind of a different issue. The whole energy thing is a whole nother conversation, but there's way worse ones than that. There was yeah. one lady who put up a thing and her energy bill had gone from, the cafe had gone from 10,000 to 58,000 or something. You have to close your doors. So you no, can't you pay your, your power bill. There are many, many people in the UK have closed their businesses because they cannot pay their electricity. They cannot afford to make their goods. And I think that is one signal of the things that are to come. I think we're at the very, very beginning of our economic calamities globally, which is why what what we're talking about, what we do is just so important for this time. Yeah. I need to read that Dylan LeClaire article. He's talking about why unwinding the greatest bubble in history. And that's essentially what's happening. I mean, you are right. The energy thing is different. The energy problem in the UK, Danny's not experiencing that in Australia. You're not experiencing the same here. I mean, I know there are energy problems, but I mean, ours in Europe are, are an absolute crisis, but that is due to uh, a lack of... But bigger you know, issues, yeah, yeah kind so of different set of issues. Yeah. The, the, but it's, the, still econ- it, it's still a result of central economic planning. Uh, and a bit more than that. Uh, yes, central economic planning, because uh, we don't have energy uh, sovereignty in the UK anymore, but also geopolitics has played into Absolutely. it. But yeah, I mean, it, 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 comes, it still comes down to fucking government. <laughs> but I am becoming a libertarian. <laughs> Um, we should uh, we should talk about your paper. I'd love to. That was a long lead up to that. It took about an hour to get to that. It was fantastic. Um, God, I could talk about that stuff all day, by the way. Um, the intro was an hour. Wow, okay. Yeah. I mean, you, some of the interviews are usually an hour. Um, so you've worked on this paper. Um, can, I, can I pull you up on one thing? Yeah. Why use the term crypto? The crypto conundrum. As opposed to Bitcoin. Well, yes. just to make it uh, relevant to a larger group of people. I mean, this paper was written for policymakers. And so to them... They we, don't see the difference. Well, I think most understand the difference between Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies. Yeah. Um, but many of them don't. They just loop it all in the same in the same bucket. Actually, Gensler does. He's one of the few people who does understand the difference. So, okay, just so people understand, because you... you 
You work for the Chamber of Digital Commerce or you run the Chamber of Digital Commerce? I'm the founder and the CEO. CEO. Okay. So explain what they do, who they are, and what they do. So Chamber of Digital Commerce, we were founded in 2014. We're the industry's first advocacy organization for Bitcoin digital assets and blockchain technologies. Uh, we represent about 200 companies across the industry. Uh, we are a nonprofit. We're headquartered in Washington, D.C., and we are the advocates for this technology and our nation's capital. Okay. So people that listen to this show, it's what Bitcoin did. It's not what blockchain did and not what crypto did. Uh, you know what they're going to say because you've probably had the same arguments and the criticisms and yada, yada. Um, and then as a libertarian, I would say, why are, you, why are you focusing on anything outside of Bitcoin? Why are you advocating for blockchain and uh, crypto? Because Bitcoin is the thing that can fundamentally make the difference here. Crypto blockchain isn't, I would argue. Well, I would argue the free market should decide that. Okay. So the laws and the regulations governing Bitcoin and other digital assets, the laws aren't written. I mean, if you look at the, I mean, just for example, in 2013, it was Fenson who wrote the first guidance for Bitcoin. Uh-huh. And it didn't use the word Bitcoin. It used the term <clears throat> convertible virtual currencies, okay. which would encompass Bitcoin and other digital assets. So, I mean, we, our position is, is technology neutral. I believe, I mean, I'm a huge Bitcoin believer. The majority of my net worth is in Bitcoin. I am a Bitcoin maximalist at heart, uh-huh. but I'm a free market person okay, at heart too. And so I, I don't think it's the chamber's role to pick which cryptocurrencies are going to be the winners and losers. Our job is to make sure we have a legal environment that allows for the further development and investment and use of this technology in the United States, and then consumers can decide where they want to put their money. Do you own any shit coins? <laughs> I have. Um, That's a yes. <laughs> I have a small a small amount of other things. I've got a little bit of Ethereum. Um, I've got 0.25 of one, of an ETH. 0.25 of yeah, me. Someone sent it to me and I've just never done anything with it. Yeah, I mean, I I watch it pretty closely because when you, I, mean, I think Bitcoin is different than every other cryptocurrency. Bitcoin's in its own bucket. Bitcoin's application is a store of value. And I think in terms of, I mean, there's been a lot of cryptocurrencies who have tried to compete with Bitcoin to be the dominant store of value application. Bitcoin is one. We, and we know that 20 years, 100 years, 500 years from now, Bitcoin is the store of value. So when you look at Ethereum, Ethereum was built to be a smart contracts platform. But there's a lot of competition there mm-hmm. with Avalanche and Polkadot and Solana and you know, many others. I think we will have a dominant smart contracts system. Will it be Ethereum? Will it be something else? We don't know. So you're an advocacy group, um, and I guess the work you're doing is, is it, do you consider yourself similar to like Bitcoin Policy Institute and all these other people who are trying to uh, ensure there's accurate information uh, that gets to policymakers rather than the bullshit we see in, in Oh my the gosh, there's media? so much fun. It's so bad. Yeah, it's I mean, terrible. that's really what we were, we launched in 2014. So we were the first um, group here in the United States to, to, to operate and be advocates for this technology. Um, 2013 was the year that 
the idea for the chamber came together, we were coming off of Silk Road and Mount Gox. And there were three hearings on Capitol Hill in 2013 about Bitcoin and Silk Road. Um, looking at the illicit finance issues related to, to Bitcoin. And most people in Washington just thought that Bitcoin was the currency of choice for criminals, which like that was its only use case was to buy drugs. It will never amount to anything more than that. Um, or it was dead because Mt. Gox collapsed. And that was the, that was some of the headlines back there. Bitcoin broke, it was hacked, it was dead. It's like, no, this was an exchange. This is not the technology itself. So there was a lot of misconceptions. There was a lot of misinformation. So when we launched in 2014, we were addressing a lot of those early narrative issues. And today they've evolved and they're a lot more complex. The biggest one we're looking at now is the ESG garbage of how this impacts climate issues. We argue it doesn't, but it's really, to me, it's really, as someone who worked on Capitol Hill, as someone who has been in DC my entire career, it's really important that we have industry professionals on the ground serving as a resource to our policymakers. So they're being educated by us, by people who know the technology, who work on the technology, not the media or not other groups who may have different incentives. Okay. So you decided to, to write a paper on uh, why the SEC has not approved an ETF yet. Something that's come up a lot. And actually, Bitcoiners have mixed feelings on this. Some okay. people absolutely don't give a shit about an ETF. Sure. Don't want it. Some people do. Um, the one side of the argument is uh, that an ETF would uh, open up the opportunity for more people to have exposure to Bitcoin. Uh, other people would argue that it breaks some of the kind of founding principles of what, uh, how, how you should interact with Bitcoin. Um, why did you decide to write this paper? What, what was it that approached? What was it that, that appealed to you in writing this? When you listen to the detractors of Bitcoin in Washington, a lot of them are saying we need more investor protections. We need more consumer protections. This technology is um, it's dangerous. There's so many scams uh, and we're not going to support the growth of this technology until there's better investor protections and better consumer protections in place. So I think the whole spot Bitcoin ETF debate really exposes that Washington doublespeak. Because if you are really someone who wants to see better consumer protections for the millions of people who own Bitcoin in America today, the, the easiest way, the, the, the best way to provide those investor protections is to allow retail investors to have access to a regulated product, which is the spot Bitcoin ETF. So if you're saying, well, we want, we want investor protections, but then you block the means of getting there. Why do you think they, they've allowed futures uh, ETFs, but not spot ETFs? Well, <laughs> I, it's not logic and reason. Nope. I can tell you that. Uh, there's a lot of conspiracy theories that have showed up on my feed over the past month or so since we've um, released the paper. Um, it, it's hard to say why. I mean, some of the conspiracies or theories um, that I've read is, is that the SEC knows what this would do for Bitcoin. I, I believe when we do get a Bitcoin ETF, and I say when because it's inevitable we will, it's just when, um, 
it's going to open up potentially trillions of dollars of buying power on Bitcoin because you have all the money that's sitting in the in brokerages under you know financial advisors a multi-trillion dollar industry. There's a lot. We know there is a, a wall of money. There's a lot of pent up demand for exposure to Bitcoin through the brokerage. And we know that because there's many other ways people are getting indirect exposure to Bitcoin today by buying things like shares of MicroStrategy, which is indirectly like a way to get exposure to Bitcoin or buying the Bitcoin mining indexes, um, or uh, GBTC, or you know, other indirect ways to get exposure to Bitcoin. Um, so I think the SEC knows that this would take Bitcoin to a whole new level of adoption, and they're blocking it. This show is brought to you by BitCasino. Established in 2013, BitCasino was the first licensed Bitcoin casino, trusted by tens of thousands of players worldwide. Not only do they have cutting-edge security, but they have fast withdrawals and VIP experiences that money can't buy. With over 2,800 games and tournaments to compete against each other and 24-7 live chat support, BitCasino is the best online Bitcoin casino. To find out more about BitCasino, the first casino to win an EGR award, head over to bitcasino.io, which is B-I-T-C-A-S-I-N-O dot I-O. And please remember to gamble responsibly. Next up, we have Ledin. From savings accounts to personal loans and even mortgages, Ledin's financial services enable Bitcoiners to experience the benefits of their holdings today without selling their Bitcoin. Now, with the recent events in the lending market, Ledin demonstrated that their robust risk management strategy was the right approach. They don't actively trade or invest in DeFi yield generation and have experienced zero losses as a result of their strategy. Ledin only supports Bitcoin and USDC, two of the highest quality and most liquid assets in the industry. They are also dedicated to transparency and are the first digital asset lending company to complete a proof of reserves attestation, which they will re-verify every six months. With multilingual support on standby 24-7, Ledin is there to support all your needs. And not only are Ledin sponsor, I'm also a customer of theirs too. So if you want to find out more, please head over to ledin.io, which is L-E-D-N. Next up, we have Fidelity Investments. So one of the most regular emails I receive is people asking me how to break into the industry. And Fidelity Investments recently reached out to me as they are looking to recruit hundreds of digitally native associates to their team and help shape the future of money. Now, Fidelity Investments is a diversified financial services provider with more than $7.2 trillion in client assets under administration and over 1.3 million trades each day and they have been pioneers in the Bitcoin mining and asset management space. They actually started in Bitcoin back in 2014 when they entered the mining space and have continued to grow their team and services. Their in-house fintech incubator is where their teams come up with innovative solutions to bridge the worlds of traditional finance and decentralization. Now you have the chance to join them and directly impact how they deliver financial services to their customers. And they will provide resources, training and development to make you successful in this emergent industry. You can learn more about this at crypto.fidelitycareers.com. That is crypto.fidelitycareers.com. Also today we have Ledger. Now recent events have highlighted just how important self-custody is. And Ledger is the smartest and easiest way for you to take control of your Bitcoin. And the world's most popular hardware wallet just got better. Ledger have recently announced the launch of their Nano S Plus. 
The larger screen makes it easier to manage and verify your Bitcoin transactions. And the Nano S Plus maintains the same high level of security as all other Ledger products. Now, I have been a Ledger customer since early 2017, before I even started this podcast, and I absolutely love the S Plus. If you want to find out more and purchase a hardware wallet from Ledger, then please head over to shop.ledger.com, which is S-H-O-P dot L-E-D-G-E-R dot com. So they're politicking. It um, is absolutely politics. Yeah, so uh, Gary Gensler is an interesting character. Um, he showed up as somebody who was educating people on blockchain. Was it at MIT? He had a course. Yes, he yeah, was a yeah. professor at MIT. Uh, so he turns up at the SEC, somebody who seems to clearly understand Bitcoin and clearly understand the difference between Bitcoin and Ethereum. Oh, yes, absolutely. He He's very smart. He does understand this at a technical level. And assumption is, I mean, without knowing that he, he has some bags of Bitcoin, I, I assume. And it joins an SEC with a very pro-Bitcoin Hester Purse, uh, who I think is a real ally to the industry in, in a fair way. Um, uh, I, I believe, having interviewed her and spent time with her, her belief is that uh, she understands what freedom means for Americans. She sees Bitcoin as a freedom technology. And she believes they should have access to it. And then everything I see from Gensler uh, is one individual who's holding back the free choice of people to buy uh, and have access to a Bitcoin ETF based entirely on his career aspirations. That's my outside observations of this character. Yeah, maybe. So he was asked under congressional testimony earlier this year by... uh, in, in Senate banking by uh, Senator Toomey, who's the ranking yeah. member of the Senate banking committee. You know, what, why don't we have one? Or what, he was asked a question about Bitcoin ETFs and his response was, and this is not verbatim, but he said he wants to have oversight of the Bitcoin markets. And if he had that, he'd be more comfortable with moving forward with the Bitcoin ETF. So that, that, so first off, <laughs> Bitcoin is a commodity. Mm-hmm. Chairman Gensler has said that as well. So he agrees Bitcoin is a commodity it's under the CFTC's jurisdiction, different yes. agency. So he's saying he wants he wants jurisdiction over this. So he wants the exchanges regulated under the SEC. Yes. Yes. And only Congress can really give him the authority to do that. What's the complexity there in that um, there's been very kind of people have been very clear that Bitcoin is a commodity, but shitcoins are very clearly securities. Um an exchange is dealing in one uh, one commodity. So uh, you list any like Coinbase, Gemini, Kraken. Right. So one they commod- have Bitcoin plus other have, cryptocurrencies. So, so how have, does yeah, the registration have, regime a work? A commodity, multiple securities. How how do like whose jurisdiction is it? Multiple jurisdictions. Yeah. So I've had the opportunity to meet directly with Chairman Gensler just in the past uh, couple of months, as well Chairman Benham, the chair of the CFTC. So. I had the opportunity to ask them privately and directly um, some of the conflicting statements between the two agencies, where Chairman Gensler has said Bitcoin is a commodity, but he thinks everything else is a security. And then CFTC Chairman Benham has said Bitcoin and Ethereum are commodities. And then there's many other cryptocurrencies that that are also commodities without specifically naming them. So asked Chairman Gensler, so how how does any how does the private sector navigate this? And you look at exchanges who have the listing of multiple tokens, they're getting different statements from two different regulators. 
how do you move forward? And it, it, this, is the, this is one of the most, um, I think, important regulatory debates for the industry happening in Washington today. And it's clear that the way the exchanges are regulated today is going to change. How? And, how do you think it's going to change? So I, what I understand to be, and I can't speak <laughs> for mm -hmm. Chairman Gary Gensler, uh, but what I understand to be his agenda is he, he well, he has said multiple times that the exchanges need to come in and register. But then you ask, well, register as what? Because they're, they're not ATSs, they're not national securities exchanges. So what is the, the, how do they register? What do they register as? And so I believe he is working on building a new, a whole new type of registration for crypto exchanges, crypto markets that will have, and he's outlined this the last time he testified in Senate banking just a couple of weeks ago, he talked about this dual licensing where you would be registered with both the CFTC and the SEC. So a lot of this is, this is what is being built today in Washington. And there's going to be winners and losers in this process. What does the registration mean? What is it he's trying to achieve with these registrations? That so once if you're registered as some type of exchange, an ATS, a national securities exchange, a crypto market, you're under the SEC's jurisdiction. So that means that they, you know, everything listed on your exchange has to be registered with the Securities and Exchange Commission. So you're subject to the full disclosure regime as well as other laws and regulations. It's the whole SEC um, regulatory framework. Do you think the security frameworks? Uh are helpful, or do you think? Uh, do you think? Do you think we've moved on from? Because uh, like the the SEC rules or the creation of securities goes back what like a hundred years. I don't know. You'll know better than me. Oh yeah, like almost a, almost a century. Are they fit for purpose now, or does what purpose do they serve? <laughs> is this just investor protection, and do we need protection? I mean, as a libertarian, I assume you so, say So, no. yeah, I mean, from a philosophical perspective, I mean, I think we need a solid rule of law. And I think when it comes to making investments, you know, the individual should be responsible for how they decide to invest their money. Like, I don't think the government should be involved in um, steering people in, in a direction of what to invest in over or not. I think that's a personal decision that needs to lie with the individual. Okay. But in order for the individual to have a fair way of doing that, you need a strong rule of law. So if you have bad actors, if you have people who are lying or committing fraud, we need a way to apprehend them. We need to get that out of the system, right? So enforcement is important. Um, and then you also need fair disclosures. So when you're investing in a company or something else, uh, it's, I think, it's important that you know everything about that company before you make the investment so you can make an informed decision. And so the you know that that's part of the SEC's purpose. And we detail that in the paper. We go into the 34 Act. So you have the 33 Act and then the 34 Act. The 34 Act details the role of the SEC. And at its foundation, the SEC is a disclosure regulator. 
as opposed to a merit regulator. So a disclosure regulator, meaning the SEC is not picking the winners and losers. They're not going through all the different things that investors want to bring to the public markets and say, okay, we like this Bitcoin thing, but we don't like uh, you know, this Ethereum thing. So you get to go forward and you don't. That's not how the <laughs> that's not how the SEC was designed by Congress. Again, they get their authority from Congress. It's everyone is subject to the same disclosure regime. So if the investor meets the re- disclosure requirements, then the in, the public is to decide what they want to invest in. And so the spot Bitcoin ETF is one example where the SEC is acting as a merit regulator. Okay. So they're operating outside outside of their mandate, outside of their jurisdiction. And it's important that Congress reins this in because if this keeps going, if they continue to act as a merit regulator, this could have implications for the entire capital markets, not just Bitcoin. Okay. So in terms of... Uh Grayscale, I know there's been lots of applications for ETS, but Grayscale and Barry Silver has been very clear that he um, he is suing the SEC. What's the status of uh, their application? And uh, is there any historical precedent where the SEC has been sued before and lost? So their ETF was denied. So both Grayscale and Bitwise had spot Bitcoin ETF applications that were denied this summer. Okay. There's a lot of history there, and that's what we detail in the paper. Um, but Grayscale has appealed uh, the denial. So it is going to court. Um, it's probably going to be a long process. It's it's literally just getting started. But ultimately, the courts will decide if this goes forward and, or not, if, the, if Grayscale gets to convert into... Uh, in ETF. But they're um, appealing on two grounds. One is a violation of the Administrative Procedures Act. Um, so they're, they're, um, for, the, for the SEC is acting arbitrarily and capricious. So they're picking winners and losers. They're acting as a merit regulator, not a disclosure regulator. The Administrative Procedures Act are the laws that apply to the agencies, uh, to the regulators themselves. You have to follow a certain process to to, to operate or to bring new uh, regulations or new laws onto on industry. Um, so I find it kind of interesting that the regulators uh, are being um, alleged of not following the rules that apply to them as they're trying to put <laughs> new rules on, on all of us. Um, and then the other piece um, that Grayscale uh, is appealing on is discrimination of issuers and that they're treating the Bitcoin ETF issuers different than other commodity ETF issuers. Which goes back to our earlier point that Bitcoin has constantly been set this higher bar in almost every area where it touches government. Yeah, so in it, this is a very specific example of where Bitcoin is being held to a higher standard. So you, you mentioned Commissioner Hester Peirce, who yeah. is, uh, I think, well, serves an incredibly important role at the SEC today because she is who's calling out this bad behavior. Constantly calling it out. <laughs> what is it she said? Like, um, whenever you... I, I can't remember what she says, but she... Whenever there's a decision made, she disagrees. She puts out one of those. A dissent. A dissent, yes. Yeah. I dissent. Yeah. I In her it. dissent of 
Bitcoin ETFs, these denials, she has said, we are holding this industry to a higher standard. So are we going to do this moving forward with, with all other ETF or other asset classes? What about everything that came before it? Um, so maybe I'll just walk through a little bit of the history yeah, of kind do. of what exactly I'm talking about. So in 2013, that's when the first um, Bitcoin ETF application was submitted to the SEC, and that was by the Winklevoss twins. Yeah. Okay. Yep. There's the timeline right there. So when that was denied, the it S- took four years to deny it. Uh, yeah. 2008. Wow. I guess so. Wow. Um, when it was denied. The SEC and their denial stated the concerns of market manipulation, that the Bitcoin markets are subject to manipulation. Um, but they, in that denial, they outlined the path forward. And it said, but if you had these surveillance sharing contracts in place, then that would be a, a path to address our concern. So, and, and, and in fairness, the markets were pretty, pretty manipulated back then, um, back in 2013. <laughs> Although you could but argue all markets are same, manipulated. But is this the same way they're treating every other commodity no ETF? Well, that's well what I'm it's saying. not. It's they're not. Pro- they probably are all manipulated. Yeah. I, but I just remember back in 2013, it was like, it was pretty obvious what was going on. So they wanted these surveillance sharing contracts in place. So in 2017 is when the Bitcoin um, futures contracts were launched on the CME. So, so when the CME, um, launched the futures contracts, these surveillance sharing agreements were in place, that infrastructure had been put in place. And so then the, the industry tried again after that to bring in an, an ETF to market. And so they had met the, the standard that the SEC had laid out before, and now they said, okay, we have these surveillance sharing agreements in place. Let's try again. And then they got denied again. The industry got denied again. And in the next set of denials, it, and this is not in uh, verbatim, but basically they're saying, okay, you don't have to just have the infrastructure to address market manipulation. You have to essentially prove the market manipulation is not happening. Again, no other industry has been told to do this. Here's the goalpost. We're just going to put them over here. That's exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. And so the what? So then the SEC and their denials put forward kind of the criteria of how do you address that this issue of um, proving the market manipulation isn't happening. And they said, we want to see that price discovery is happening on the CME, where the futures contracts trade, not on the the Bitcoin, the spot exchanges. Um, and there's five Bitcoin exchanges that make up the reference rate for the futures contracts. Um, Kraken and Coinbase and three others. They're detailed in the paper. I don't have them Gemini, memorized. Would it be Gemini? Binance? I think Gem- Binance? No, Finance is not. Probably Bitfinex, I'd guess. Bitfinex. I don't remember. Yeah. There's five of them. Yeah. So then the industry spent years developing the research to show where price discovery is happening. Um, Fidelity and Bitwise uh, both conducted their own independent studies, and they were able to show um, with empirical data to a statistically significant basis that price discovery happens on the CME, not on the spot exchanges. And there were nine reports that looked at the exact same thing. 
One was an academic study. There was one that had a flaw. They're all in our um, in our report. We will put it in the show notes so people can access it. But all of that information was provided to the SEC. And then this year, Bitwise and Grayscale had their applications and they were denied. So the goalpost was moved again. So the same because of market, the concerns of market manipulation is, is the inherent issue, right, okay. the inherent concern. And then, um, you know, I already uh, stated this, but Chairman Gensler was asked under congressional testimony by Senator Toomey, why? And he said, well, you know, now I want to have jurisdiction over the Bitcoin exchanges. That's that. Again. Which the SEC doesn't have the authority to do that. Only Congress can give the SEC the authority to do that because they'd have to expand their jurisdiction. So Didn't Ovik talked the other day to us about a new thing that was put in for the CFTC to have jurisdiction. Uh, of spot market oversight. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Whole another conversation. Yeah. Who who was it? Who was who's that's the up? Senate Ag Committee that's yeah. introduced that bill. All right. So uh, it's very clear they just is it? Do you think they don't want it to happen, or do you think Gensler is uh, just trying to play power games? So under the previous chairman of Jay Clayton, so the companies who had mm-hmm. the issuers who had Bitcoin ETF applications, if you talk to them, they will tell you that they were. They believed they were going to get their applications approved. Yeah, and Jay Clayton was uh, he was engaging with the industry. I mean, he didn't he, he even come to consensus. He was engaged. So yeah. the SEC was working very, very closely with the issuers. They were on the final, final details of bringing these products to market. But then the administration changed, and when God Gensler took the the the, the helm. Um, the term some of the companies has used is the Iron Curtain came down and they were no longer in communication with the SEC and they no longer have a path forward. Okay, so what are the next steps? Because you, you're, you're saying this is inevitable. What do you think the steps are to be getting uh, Spot ETF approved? So right now it's going into two different directions since we, there's the legal but the iron curtain yeah. at the SEC and the SEC it, you know it seems pretty clear they're not going to move forward um so now it's it's going to the courts and it's going to congress so grayscale is the first to initiate you know a legal action um and the courts will weigh in and then the other avenue, sorry on that like how independent are the courts on this kind of issue are they politically influenced or are they completely independent uh well they're supposed to be completely independent i'm aware of that but but is there any like i say is there a historical precedent with the sec being sued and has anyone been successful um i assume so i mean this is i I haven't documented every legal case against the sec but in terms of our industry i don't i don't think i I think in our industry that hasn't happened yet okay and then uh the other the other path is is because all of the sec's authority comes from congress so congress could pass a law changing uh the direction that the sec has taken is there any action is there any bills that are being considered for this uh, so we have shared this report today with a hundred different members of Congress, and we are getting uh, bipartisan support across the aisles. Right. I have both Republican and Democrat members who have said they believe this is an injustice and 
they want a spot Bitcoin ETF to come to market. And so there are pretty significant efforts brewing in Congress to bring oversight to the SEC and to get this to market as soon as possible. Do you think there's any potential that a spot ETF for Bitcoin, while good for American investors, is potentially not good for Bitcoin? And let me uh, explain where I'm coming from with this. Um, A wall of money, as we've talked about, could come in for Bitcoin. But ideally, Bitcoin is decentralized. We want mining to be distributed uh, distributed around the world, but we also want ownership to be distributed around the world. We don't want to have large pockets of centralized Bitcoin. Uh, about is it forty percent of Bitcoin mining now is in the U.S.? Did we know that? So, yeah. yeah. This now when forty percent was in China, people talked about this a lot. Now it's forty percent of the U.S. People are talking about it less. I'm not sure it's as that high. I think it might be. Can we find that out, Danny? Mm-hmm. But but either way. Right, you don't want centralized pockets of people holding other people's Bitcoin. Yeah, but also, would it be, you know, if Bitcoin is, like, as people believe, will be the future money of the world, I don't know the answer to this, but is there a a risk, not only to Bitcoin, but uh, would it create a disparity? So Cambridge estimates... 37. Yeah. Is there, is there, as of December 21? Yes, it's probably higher now. Uh, Like, is there a risk in that there is a disproportionate held by America, say 50? I I wouldn't even know what the concentration is ownership. I wonder if you can find that out. Mm, But like, if a wall of money came into the US, you could talk about a large, very significant percentage of Bitcoin is held in America by Americans or American institutions. And I wonder if that's ultimately good or it doesn't matter i don't know i don't know the answer well the united states is the largest economy in the world today the so i mean (laughs) a lot of the world's wealth is here in the united states Mm -hmm. so i think that's more just emblematic of how you know different economies are kind of dispersed today but that has negative uh there's, there's negative consequences for other nations. The, the high price of the dollar at the moment and dollar being the global reserve currency has that causes problems for other countries, uh, not just That's dollarized the countries. exorbitant privilege. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it is. Uh, so I just wonder if, like, if an ETF brought a wall, a wall of money, I don't know, there'll, there'll probably be some smarter people than me who can write in and understand this and say it doesn't matter. But I, I just wonder if that creates some kind of uh, disproportionate uh, If pa- too many power. Americans yeah. hold Bitcoin. Not too many Americans hold Bitcoin, but too much of the total... Uh, uh, amount of Bitcoin is held by. I think every American should hold Bitcoin, but I want every Bangladeshi to hold Bitcoin and every Indian and every English and I, person. And I think the point is that it wouldn't be every American holding Bitcoin. It'd be one company holding Bitcoin and everyone has exposure. So, and who has that exposure? Is it just rich people again get exposure? Right. Like, I want, I want the little. Like, we want to close the close the wealth divide. Um, yeah, you know, one of the one of the. Uh, areas that I'm really interested in. We've been trying to introduce more uh, progressives into our our show because it doesn't matter whether you're uh, conservative, uh, libertarian, or, or progressive, Bitcoin is getting exposed to a wider group of people, and a lot of FUD comes from the progressives. So we've been trying to get more progressives on the show to, to, to defeat the FUD. Uh, and one of the areas that you can use that is, is try, actually progressives hate the wealth divide. They blame billionaires, but actually what they don't understand is a lot of the policies they advocate for uh, makes the wealth divide worse. Worse. One of the things about Bitcoin is reducing the wealth divide. So ideally, Bitcoin would reduce the wealth divide, but but would an ETF be counterproductive to that? Because it 
it exposes like who who uses an ETF product? Is it people with money already? It's re- well, retail investors. That's who this would benefit. In my opinion, a, a spot Bitcoin ETF, the biggest benefit would be for the retail investor. Well, what is the demographic of retail investors? Is it middle class? Is it middle to upper class? Is it I, I don't know. It's imagine. everyone that's not an accredited investor. But but who who's in that retail class of not accredited investor? Because just the normal people. But normal normal people can be anything from lower like to, yeah, it's, to, it's lower a mix. to middle, but, but yeah, I don't it's, know. It's, that it's wage earners. It's wage earners. It's people who, it's mostly people who have a job that comes with retirement benefits and 401ks. Yeah. That, that would be an interesting demographic. So it could be everything from a school teacher that makes, you know, thirty forty thousand dollars $40,000 a year. It could be, uh, you know, someone who. But they know, can already buy Bitcoin. You can. So absolutely. So you can buy Bitcoin directly through going to an exchange. You can go to a a famous Bitcoin meetup. Uh, You can buy, you don't need an ETF to buy Bitcoin, but a lot, but the problem, the challenge with that is that in order to understand how to safely navigate through an exchange to buy Bitcoin today, you have to do some research. And there's a lot of landmines out there. There's a lot of, there's a lot of frauds in this space. If you don't understand just how the technology works. If you lose your keys, like you're screwed. And so for some people who want to go down that path to understand how this works, they should be able to to buy Bitcoin directly and self-custody. So this is for everybody who's not willing to do that. Or a lot of people, when they make investments, they, they, they do so through their financial advisors. They have separate money that's set aside. It's their savings. It's what they invest to protect their purchasing power. And they have professionals who have a fiduciary responsibility to oversee those funds. And so this opens up an opportunity for that that money that's set aside in retirement funds, managed through brokerages, to invest that directly in Bitcoin. So if you want to buy Bitcoin today, you can't do it through your financial advisor. If you go to your financial advisor and say, I would, you know, I've been reading about Bitcoin and I, I want to allocate, you know, part of my savings to this. I need, can you go make that for me? They say, we can't help you with that. You have to, I can't even talk to you about it. I'm not allowed to, you have to go do that on their own. But isn't that a good thing that we encourage people to do the work? We encourage people to understand what Bitcoin is, to understand what a node is, to understand private keys. If we make it too easy, do we potentially risk uh, weakening Bitcoin? I like the. I think in a, a strong and a healthy eco- economy, you have many options, and you allow the individual to pick which option is most appropriate for them. So what about, you know, Come on, we're all lazy. We'll end up picking the easy option. That's the it's, it's Oh, not everybody. I mean, you didn't. I didn't. Um, I didn't have the choice. And th- when it comes to spot Bitcoin ETFs in the United States, we're behind because there are ETFs trading all over the world today. So the U.S. typically is the first to bring new innovative products to market, but when it, it comes to Bitcoin, we're not. And so we have Bitcoin spot Bitcoin ETFs that are trading in Canada, in Germany, Switzerland, and many other places. Mm. And we can look at 
how, what those demographics look like. And today there have been no instances, no reported instances of, uh, hacks or thefts or things going wrong. Oh no, no, I understand. I understand that. But, but at the same time, not your keys, not your Bitcoin. Thank you, Andreas, uh, is, it's a very important flag for Bitcoin. We talk about that a lot. I agree. We talk about, you know, managing private keys. Now look, I empathize with what you're saying. My dad, there is zero chance he could buy, store, and protect his private keys. If you listen down, I'm really sorry, but you're rubbish. Uh, like, he, he can barely use a remote control. Um, so I get it. And but There are going to be people who either don't have the yeah. means, don't have the, the capabilities, or don't have the time or the interest. But you know, the, but, but you know the solution for my father is that I do it for him. And I manage his private but keys. But you can't manage everybody's private keys. No, no, but either. I can do my father's. I can. I, I manage my children's private keys and they're gradually being educated. And, you know, at some point I'll hand their private keys to them. But and I'm only challenging you because this is what other people will bring up. I see the benefits of both sides. But whilst we want to advocate for a strong economy and advocate for, uh, like, the expansion of Bitcoin, also we should be advocating for a strong, decentralized robust Bitcoin and a community that manages its private keys. And I worry that an ETF warps some of that. Well, and... And, and that is somebody knowing my net wealth will uh, take a massive, like, massive leap if there's a, a, an ETF approved. Yeah. Well, but, again, in, in, a, in a strong economy, you have lots of different options. That also includes lots of different Bitcoin ETF options. I, I think it would be detrimental if you only had one. Yeah, that's if a, only one company moved forward. I think there should be, and there's been 16 companies in the U.S. who have who issuers have applied for a, a spot Bitcoin ETF. So you want many different options. You want you want strong disclosures so investors can make those decisions. And for those, and and this could be the first step for a lot of people. It's like going and managing your own private keys. That's like swimming in the ocean. Well, a lot of people are afraid of the ocean because they don't, they can't see, they don't, they don't know, but they're more comfortable getting in a swimming pool. So like the Bitcoin spot ETF is like getting in a swimming pool. You get comfortable with the water. And then once you're comfortable and you start learning about it, then maybe they'll be more comfortable jumping in the ocean and managing their own private keys. But I think it is important that we have many different options for many different ranges of people because we are a very diverse economy. Mm-hmm. And again, the government coming in and saying you can't have this or you can't have that, that's not the role of the regulator. That's fair. And we need to ensure that they are operating within their mandates and their authority. Because if that goes unchecked, that can have significant consequences for society. Being the, uh, the being the first approved ETF has a massive advantage. Absolutely. We saw that with the Bitcoin futures yeah. ETFs. Or the, uh, I, I, I mean, I can't remember who the first one was, but I know everyone uh, which followed it, the, you know, when you compared the trading volumes, there was significantly... It was lower. over a billion dollars. Yeah. So do you think if when we finally get to the point where one is approved, they will have to approve them all at the same time? I, I sincerely hope that the SEC is organized organized enough to have a fair process in place to say, okay, the industry has been working for a decade. There's 16 companies who have tried to do this. We need to come up with a process to ensure that we do this in a fair way and we don't create a Bitcoin ETF monopoly. Because that is the risk. And so one of our advisory board members is Paul Atkins, who was an SEC commissioner. And we had the opportunity to talk to him. And he was there when the first 
um, gold ETFs um, were brought to market. And it was a similar kind of situation where there was one company who had been working for years to bring one to market. And then several years later, there were a few more who went. And just the way that the timelines worked out, it was one of those companies who kind of came in at the tail end and they were going to be first. And Paul said, wait, 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 we can't just let this company go first when there's another company who's been working for years with us to get all the infrastructure in place. And so they came up with the process to bring them out in a fair way. So I, I sincerely hope when when this moves forward, there there is a process to ensure it's done in an equitable way for the issuers. Well, if somebody wants to I think know this more is about a, this, this is a critical on it, this is a critical on ramp. So in 2013, we a critical on ramp was unleashed, and that was Coinbase. We we saw the Coinbase effect. 2013 was a massive yeah. bull market for the industry because before there was Coinbase, you had to go to like Mt. Gox to buy Bitcoin, which was not a you know great local place. local Bitcoins, or you had to go to like a sketchy Bitcoin meetup and like you know, do this whole thing, this whole dance in person, definitely not the safest way to do anything. So this is another, this could be the, the ETF will have, have another effect. It, it's a way to open up an on-ramp. So the more on-ramps, the more ways we have for people to get exposure to Bitcoin, the better. I mean, it's the same thing. With, I'm, I'm still going to challenge that. I think the more ways we have people to access and hold private keys the better. But you then. gotta meet people where they are too, because that that is a big leap for a lot of people. And it's it's putting a lot of expectations in the same expectations on everybody. And I think we've got to meet people where they are if we want them to go on this journey with us. I still challenge it, but like look, look, I understand what you're saying, but I still challenge it. But okay, fair enough. So I'm just conscious of time. If people want to learn more about this, where would you send them to? So this paper is uh, available for free download on our website at digitalchamber.org. This is one very specific example where I think we've been able to really highlight where this industry is being treated differently. But this issue is happening across the entire federal government. You're seeing it in AML laws. You're seeing it in the tax laws. You're seeing it uh, in a lot of the legislation pending before Congress today, um, I think these policy fights for Bitcoin, these, this is the fight of my generation. And I think it's absolutely important that we as, as Bitcoiners and people who care about this technology understand these political fights, these legal fights, because if we get the policy wrong, it can totally skew our future. And it's going to have an impact on um, how people have access to this technology. So we're really fighting for fair access so everybody can participate in this peaceful opting out of the central economic uh, regime. And you, you see this in you know all areas of law. And this is a, a very significant undertaking for, for any organization. But that really is the purpose of the Chamber of Digital Commerce, to be on the ground, to understand these legal fights, to understand these policy fights, and to fight for the absolute best laws possible for the industry. Uh, you just made a trailer there with your last about one minute that we could put out to advertise this, which was brilliant. Uh, that wider conversation, I think that's a whole new podcast and I think we should we should do this again. Yeah, I'd love to. Um, we will be back around January time um, and I, I would like to sit down with you more again. Uh, I'd like to expand on that at the start of the conversation we had as well because I think that is, is super interesting. Uh, Perianne, this was fascinating and um, I really appreciate it coming on. We will put, uh, direct people to the Digital Chamber of Commerce uh, direct them to the paper and uh, direct, direct them to you, yourself. Uh, 
but some people are lazy and don't check the show notes. Are there any specific addresses you want to send people to? Uh, so we're active on Twitter at Digital Chamber, or my personal is at Perian DC. Okay, we will share those in the show notes. Um, good luck with this. This was a fascinating chat, and uh, yeah, hopefully we'll sit down and do this again soon. I'm sorry so. about yesterday. Yeah, no worries. I look forward to it. Thank you. Okay, thank you for listening to What Bitcoin Did. I hope you enjoyed this interview with Perianne. I did myself. I'm going to get her back on the show sometime. I really want to discuss a bunch of other things with her. Um, I'm also really looking forward to the Pacific Bitcoin Conference. It's great to be out here in California. I'm very pleased to be involved in the events. I'm going to be MC in part of it, and I'm also going to be moderating a couple of amazing panels. I will be heading out to the Texas Blockchain Summit in Austin, hopefully see some Bitcoiners out there as well. Anyway, if you want to get in touch, please do feel free to reach out to me. My email address, hello at whatbitcoindid.com. I will get back to you. Outside of that, have some fun. Let's enjoy the sunshine, and I will see you all soon. <laughs>